Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the second continuation. We spent an inordinate amount of time in 1 Samuel chapter 15 due to the, the several powerful biblical principles and lessons that, that we find operating here. Now keep in mind that we're not discovering new principles in 1 Samuel. We're seeing the, the long-established principles of the Torah being put into practice. Or as is the common word used today to describe putting principles into action, we're witnessing the application of God's word. Now let's take a few minutes, several minutes actually, to review because I've thrown so much at you the past couple of lessons. Now in our previous lesson we discussed the foundational theological and practical matter of the world being divided into two discrete, distinct groups of people by the Lord and that this division occurred um, upon the Father's election and separation of um, Abraham and certain of his descendants from the rest of the world. These were people designed and designated to serve Jehovah, God of Israel. Now the people who were set apart for service to God were called Hebrews. And all other people on this planet, the vast majority, were designated as Gentiles, Goyim in Hebrew. Thus, there was but one group, the Hebrews, who were ordained to trust and serve God, establish God's kingdom on earth, bring his laws and commands into his kingdom, and produce the Messiah. The other group, Gentiles, represented the opposite attributes and purpose. Gentiles were those who did not trust or serve God, who were opposed to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, did not want God's laws and commands as their own, and saw no need for a Messiah. Now, although the people set apart for God, set apart for service to Him, were given a covenant to establish them and to operate under the Abrahamic covenant, that covenant was essentially an unconditional promise from God. That meant it was one-sided. There was no if-then inherent in the Abrahamic covenant. Once Abraham accepted God's offer of the covenant, from that point forward, all that was left was for God's promise of a special land, a kingdom with a government, to be created. And then given to them as an inheritance, given to this set-apart group of people. And then for Abraham's descendants to be some undefined kind of blessing to all the families of the world, people on both sides of that great divide. And, and this was to come about by some vague means. There, there was no explanation contained in the Abrahamic covenant as to how or when all this would happen or, or what it might even look like when it did. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 3, 
We found that King Saul was ordered by God through the prophet Samuel to destroy Israel's arch enemy, Amalek. Amalek was the biblical epitome of the Gentile nations and also somewhat of a metaphor for Satan or at least a metaphor for being Satan's primary stooge. Amalek was accused by God of mercilessly hating and attacking his people almost immediately after they were redeemed. And thus Amalek was worthy of nothing but total annihilation. Amalek had attacked Israel from the rear of the column where the weakest and most feeble walked as they were fleeing from the Pharaoh. Israel had done nothing to Amalek. They had no designs on Amalek's territory and didn't provoke them so far as we know. So why did Amalek come after Israel? Because they existed. Because Israel existed. And therefore Amalek hated them. Because Amalek is in their nature opposed to God, opposed to his people, opposed to his kingdom. The spirit of Amalek, the spirit of opposition to God and all of his plans is inbred in all Gentiles at birth. And the only way it's removed is when that evil spirit is replaced with the Holy Spirit of God. That Israel exists is enough for those with the spirit of Amalek to want to destroy them. Thus in our time, we see that upon the miraculous and prophesied rebirth of Israel as a nation of Hebrews, on the very day that God called them home and reestablished them back in their lands, Gentiles, inbred with the spirit of Amalek, immediately attacked God's people when they were the most weary and vulnerable. People who were but months removed from Nazi death camps, weakened by starvation, deprivation, slavery, and by no means physically strong or emboldened, were attacked by the combined armies of the powerful Arab League. Why did those Arabs attack Israel? Did Israel harm them? Did Israel have harsh designs against them? No. It's merely that Israel existed. It was that after 19 centuries of prophetic dormancy, God's plan of redemption exploded back into action as the Hebrews were gathered in, as promised, from their long, long exile. And yet, against all earthly odds, because the Lord God of Israel fought for His people, His people won. While the rest of the Gentile world simply folded their hands and watched largely disinterested as it all happened. Hebrews are born spiritually quite different from Gentiles. Hebrews are not born with the spirit of Amalek. First, because they're born as God's set-apart people, and second, 
They had been redeemed from their evil taskmaster many centuries earlier. This is definitely not the case for Gentiles, is it? However, after the previous lesson, I was asked if when I told you this fact, that I was also implying that the Hebrews' redemption from Egypt might have relieved them from their original sin, their sin nature, my answer to that is definitely not. Of course not. If that sin nature had been removed from the Hebrews when they left Egypt, there would have been no need for the Messiah that the Torah speaks of. This continuing sin nature within the Hebrews is one of the reasons that the saints of old, pre-Christ, were not permitted to come into God's heaven just yet. The Old Testament saints, Hebrews, who trusted God, who were obedient to His Torah, died and were kept in a safe place called Abraham's bosom. Only after Yeshua's redemptive work on the cross was accomplished and He arose from His own grave, thus atoning for the original sin, something the law was never designed to do. Only then could those righteous souls of God's people rise up and go to live with God in His heaven. Today and every day since Messiah Yeshua's resurrection, the only means for anyone, Hebrew or Gentile, to be pardoned by God for our sinful behavior and for our sinful nature, that evil spiritual remnant that's part of all humans, is to trust in the God of Israel. That means to trust in His Son. Torah observance depends on trusting God. And at the center of Torah observance is the expectation of our ultimate deliverance by means of Messiah. Thus, the reason that a Hebrew who was born redeemed by no merit of his own must still accept their Hebrew Messiah is that Messiah is very much central to Torah obedience. To dismiss the Messiah is to dismiss the Torah. I doubt that any but perhaps the most modern liberal Jewish synagogue would even disagree with that remark. The issue then is who is the Messiah and what is His nature? Now I say all this not as a fine speech or as a rhetorical comment, but rather from the point of view of the ancient rabbis. The great biblical scholar Alfred Edersham, a, a Hebrew and a believer in Yeshua, over 150 years ago, painstakingly compiled a list of 456 Old Testament passages that even the ancient rabbis said were in direct reference to the Messiah. 
And these statements were taken from over 500 separate Jewish writings. Now, although most religious Jews to this day deny that Yeshua of Nazareth is that Messiah, they readily acknowledge that God's Messiah is at the core of the Torah. So the only hope for Gentiles then is the same as the only hope for Jews, Yeshua HaMashiach. But don't be mistaken. Hebrews begin life from a different, and Paul would say in the book of Romans, spiritually advantageous position than Gentiles. Listen to this. Don't turn to your Bibles, just listen to these verses. I'm going to start at Romans 2.25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you are a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision now be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who've had a Brit Milah circumcision ceremony and have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly, and true circumcision is of the heart. It's spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. But here's the kicker. Because Paul doesn't want Gentiles to get the wrong idea any more than the Jews. So he continues, and by the way, this just continues right on. There's no verses skipped here. Then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar. As the Tanakh, the Old Testament, says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you are put on trial. So, what advantage has the Jew... The Hebrew, Paul says, much in every way. Ah, Who does the Hebrew have advantage over? Gentiles. Of course. You're not a Hebrew, then you're a Gentile. I mean, there's only two possibilities of human identity since the time of Abraham. On the other hand... Are Gentiles so entirely disadvantaged that we have no hope? And Hebrews have such a great advantage that they're saved merely because they're born as Hebrews. Well, eight verses later, in Romans 3.9, Paul answers the question. He says, so are we Jews better off? 
And he says, not entirely. For I have already made the charge that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are controlled by sin. What Paul means by controlled by sin is our sin natures. The ongoing consequences of that original sin. So what does a Gentile have to do to obtain the same spiritual advantage as the Jew? Romans 11, 13, he begins so that there's no confusion. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. And skipping down five verses. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. But if some of those branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you have become equal shares in that rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as though you're better than those branches. But if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting the root. Root's supporting you. Major spiritual principle here, I'd say. Now, I know many of you understand this concept now, and you may wonder why I, I find as many ways as I can to keep exposing this amazing truth. The reason is that the vast majority of the Gentile church, and probably many who are listening to this message, are blind to our relationship with Israel, to our grafted-in attachment to the covenants of Israel, and that it is the divine, heavenly ideal of Israel as a pure kingdom of God. An ideal that earthly Israel has never fully attained. And as a perfected people set apart for God, that, that, that Hebrews and Gentiles, we have this waiting for us if, if we will accept the Hebrew Messiah that the Torah and the prophets insist that we must. No amount of following laws and ordinances and rituals ever did or ever will make us that perfected people. No amount of performing righteous deeds or pious works will ever merit us salvation. But, once declared to be part of that group, These laws and ordinances become our manual for living the redeemed life. Living those commandments becomes our obligation and we assume them as a reasonable and expected response to the God who has saved us. We're not left to wonder or guess, guess what pleases and displeases God. Now the other major area we discussed last week was the issue of obedience. And it centered on King Saul's insistence that although he didn't entirely obey every last detail of the law of the band, the law of Cherem, that he mostly did. 
And thus, that should have pleased God. And even where he didn't do precisely what God ordered, his intentions were good and he saw no personal sin and his failure to destroy all the spoils of war that were captured from Amalek. Now, I confronted you with a modern-day application of this same dilemma that faced King Saul. And I gave you three examples of common situations whereby Christians tend to feel that with good intentions, following God's laws to some degree or another ought to be good enough. Now I know from both the positive and the negative responses to that portion of the lesson that this must have hit home for many of you. Because while I posed three questions regarding tithing, symbols, and observing holidays, I gave you no answers. That's right. Even though you may have felt like I was telling you that your personal decisions and choices may be suspect or even wrong, in fact, I gave you no answers at all to those questions. So however you reacted to them, it wasn't from me telling you what to do or how to feel, because I didn't. Maybe it was your own conscience. Maybe it was the Lord that you were wrestling with so uncomfortably. But the point of that exercise was to get us to think about the very nature of obedience. Especially in this, the era of such a casual brand of Christianity. Is obedience even required any longer? Is partial obedience obedience? Is partial obedience disobedience? Tough questions. At least it's tough from a human perspective, especially when we choose to overlook God's word on the subject, because perhaps how we feel about it doesn't match with what God says about it. So let's get a little bit further into dealing with some of these difficult issues by rereading a segment of 1 Samuel chapter 15. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 13. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, that's page 314. Starting at verse 13. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, May Adonai bless you, for I have done what Adonai ordered. But Samuel answered, Well, if that's so, why do I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing? And Saul said, Well, they brought them from the Amalekites because the people spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to Adonai your God. But we completely destroyed the rest. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I'm going to tell you what Adonai said to me last night. And he said, speak. And Samuel then said, you may be small in your own sight, but you're head of the tribes of Israel. 
and anointed you king over Israel. Now Adonai sent you on a mission and he told you, go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them until they have been exterminated. Why did you seize the spoil? Instead of paying attention to what Adonai said, from Adonai's viewpoint, you've done a very evil thing. Saul said to Samuel, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said. I carried out the mission on which Adonai sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people, they took some of the spoil. The best of the sheep and the cattle set aside for destruction to sacrifice to Adonai, your God, in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice, and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry, because you have rejected the word of Adonai. He too has rejected you as king. And Saul said to Samuel, Oh, I have sinned. I have violated the order of Adonai and your words too, because I was afraid of the people, and I listened to what they said. Now please pardon my sin and come back with me so that I can worship Adonai. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you because you have rejected the word of Adonai and Adonai has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel was turning around to leave, he took hold of the hem of his coat and it tore. And Samuel said to him, Adonai has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you today and given it to a fellow countryman of yours who is better than you. Moreover, the Eternal One of Israel will not lie or change His mind because He isn't a mere human being subject to changing His mind. And then Saul said, I have sinned, but in spite of that, please show me respect now before the leaders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me so that I can worship Adonai your God. So Samuel followed Saul back and Saul worshipped Adonai. And then Samuel said, Bring Agog, the king of Amalek, here to me. And Agog came to him in chains and said, Without mine, my, without doubt, mine will be a bitter death. And Samuel said, Just as your sword has left women childless, so will your mother be left childless among women. Samuel cut Agog into pieces before Adonai in Gilgal. Samuel returned to Ramah. Saul went up to his house and Givat Saul. Never again did Samuel see Saul until the day he died. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And Adonai regretted that he'd made Saul king of Israel. Saul's self-defense was that he was afraid of the people. The people wanted the spoils for themselves. He didn't want to disappoint them. But as Israel's supreme earthly leader, it was King Saul's job to do exactly that. Disappoint him if it need be. His first loyalty was to be to the Lord, not to the wishes of the Israelites. Unfortunately, King Saul was more worried about what the people thought than what Jehovah demanded. Now another part of Saul's self-defense, Saul's self-defense was that he had generally done what Adonai told him to do. 
But Samuel's response to that argument is a short piece of poetic prose that's been used and terribly abused by Christianity. And it begins in verse 22 with, Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? It's always been fascinating to me that the same folks who declare the Old Testament dead and gone and no longer valid turn around and borrow this verse from the Old Testament to prove their point. But when we read it in the context of the story in 1 Samuel 15, it takes on a rather different light. The usual sense as taught in church is that instead of sacrifices and bird offerings, now it's a matter of merely being obedient in some undefined way. The idea is that obedience has replaced sacrifice. But obedience to what? Well, often it's said to God. But again, if there's no longer any rules or regulations, what is there to be obedient to? But the bottom line here is that in no way does this passage suggest that the sacrificial system, beginning with Samuel, is now defective, ineffective, or obsolete. The prophets often condemned the people of Israel for their abuses of the sacrificial system, as in Isaiah 1 and 66, Jeremiah 7, Hosea 6, Amos 5, just to name a few. And here Samuel is doing the same by telling Saul that he can't intentionally and knowingly do what is wrong with the idea that he has a get-out-of-jail-free card up his sleeve. That all he has to do is perform some ritual sacrifice and presto, he's fine. So Samuel tells him, not so fast. And this is because As one commentator put it so well, no ceremonial can make up for a rebellious attitude to God and to His commandments because obstinate resistance to God exalts the self-will to the place of authority. Indeed, if one thinks they can on the one hand intentionally disobey God while on the other rely on a sacrifice as a kind of band-aid, to place over the rebellious attitude, all the time fully meaning to go and sin some more, then the sacrifice means exactly nothing. What Samuel's response plainly means is that in the end, a sacrifice is only to pay for a disobedient act. The idea is not to disobey. Don't commit the sin in the first place. And then some poor innocent animal won't need to have its throat slit to pay for your indiscretion. Amen. The only reason for the sacrificial system is to give God's followers some means to survive our disobedience. If there was no sin, there would be no need for a sacrifice. 
Paul asked his listeners this rhetorical question that was meant to be absurd on its face. In Romans 6.1, he says, So then are we to say, hey, let's keep on sinning. That way there can be more grace. Later on in Hebrews, a similar connection between obedience and sacrifice is made. Hebrews 10.26 For if we deliberately continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, but only the terrifying prospect of judgment, a raging fire that will consume the enemies. Where would these apostles of the New Testament get such ideas about the ineffectiveness of sacrifice, whether of goats or sheep or Yeshua, if one's mind is only towards rebellion? From 1 Samuel 15. Let's look even closer at 1 Samuel 15 at verse 22. It says in Hebrew, Does Jehovah take as much pleasure in Olah and Zevah as in obeying what God says? Now, as most of you know, Olah is a, per, a particular kind of altar sacrifice. Zevah is another. And there are several more kinds. Olah is more or less the supreme altar sacrifice. Zevah is kind of at the other end of the scale. This is called merism. The idea is to give two extremes as a means of saying this and everything in between. We in modern times say A to Z, meaning something's all-inclusive. So Samuel is explaining that no kind of sacrifice, no kind of tithe, offering, gift, act, animal, produce, big or small, inexpensive, luxurious, is better than simply being obedient to God in the first place. Obedience is the proper response to God's instructions for a redeemed person. A sacrifice is usually the result of a redeemed person's disobedience to God's instructions. The need for Christ is a result of our disobedience, not our goodness. Yeshua's sacrificial death on the cross is a consequence of our rebellion, not because it's automatic that sacrifice is inevitable. And the same way Yeshua's atoning death is definitely better for us than the sacrifice of bulls and goats because not only does it not cost us, but because among other things, His sacrifice did something that the law of Moses never could. Atone for the original sin that plagues all humankind, Hebrew or Gentile. And just as Samuel said that in comparison, it is better to obey and therefore not need to sacrifice... So it is that depending on Christ's sacrifice is better for us than being obedient to the law. But just as in Samuel in no way was intending to suggest 
that the sacrificial system was now obsolete or useless, neither was Yeshua suggesting that the law was dead and gone and nailed to the cross. Matthew 5.17, once again, Don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uterus stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen, must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, they're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So from the standpoint of God's expectation of His followers to be obedient to His commands, Jesus just said that nothing has changed in that regard with His advent. And that the source of those commands is the Torah. And in many ways, Yeshua's assertion is just a replay of Samuel's to King Saul. The second half, now of verse 22, is a parallelism. Where it says, Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. This is just a second way of saying exactly the same thing as the first half of the verse, and it was just a common Hebrew way of biblical expression. So we're not going to study that any further. But verse 23 is more difficult, I think. The, The question this verse poses to us is, how is it that any kind of rebellion, in reality is like the sin of sorcery. And our stubbornness towards God is equivalent to idolatry. Now notice that in these two examples, the two sins mentioned for comparison, sorcery and idolatry, are capital offenses. There is no sacrifice for them. Now I think the great German Bible commentator C.F. Kiel says it really well. He says this, All conscious disobedience to God is actually idolatry. Because disobedience makes the self-will, the human I, the human me, into a God. When God says to do this or don't do that, and we say no, and we do otherwise, we have put our own opinions our intellect, our will, above the Lord's. There is no better definition of idolatry than this. I know we don't usually think of it that way, but reducing all sin to essentially either idolatry or sorcery, which is the dealing with other gods, is very much a parallel thought with the well-known biblical statement about the foundational principle that undergrids all of God's commandments. Mark 12, 28. 
One of the Torah teachers came up and heard them engaged in this discussion, and seeing that Yeshua answered them well, he asked them, Which is the most important commandment of them all? And Yeshua answered, The most important is Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your understanding, with all your strength. And the second is this, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The foundation of all good is to love God and to love your fellow man. The foundation of all sin and evil is idolatry and sorcery. To love God is to obey God. To commit idolatry is to put our will above His. And that is exactly what King Saul has done by making the decision to allow the Amalekite leader, Agog, to live. And by not destroying all the spoils, but instead taking some for himself and for the people of Israel. Well, in verse 24, King Saul now sees that his partial obedience is actually disobedience. And that his disobedience is fundamentally, as is all of our disobedience, idolatry. So he admits it. But still he says, it was actually for the sake of the people who he was afraid of, he says. And that he listened to them instead of to God. It seems, though, that Saul still doesn't fully understand the seriousness of his situation. And the next few verses reveal that Saul was thinking of the violation and the possible repercussion of it in political terms and not spiritual terms. I'm sad to say that this is the condition of politicians since time immemorial. And it's expressed well in Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29.25 Fearing human beings is a snare, but he who trusts in Adonai will be raised high. You know, it's so very difficult for teachers, pastors, rabbis, mothers, fathers, political leaders to resist the temptation to gain the favor of their congregations, their friends, their family, or their constituents by surrendering to their requests instead of listening to and obeying God's word. As David Samura says, in the biblical principle, democracy contradicts theocracy. That's the reason that there will always be an insolvable tension between human government and divine government. That is the reason that we see this ebb and flow 
in American politics towards and then away from secular government. As much as democracy is probably the best there is as an institution of human government, it's still at odds with God's ways. A vote of the people is fine, provided the choices given to them are preferences, not divine moral imperatives. King Saul gave the people the moral choice to disobey God. And they and he chose unwisely and rebelliously. We'll finish up chapter 15 and begin chapter 16 next week.